Andrew, that's page 1061, Luke 24. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. <clears throat> 1061. On the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, Why are you discuss what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. 
There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. And in our uh, series of basic Christianity, uh, we've come to, uh, and in the part, uh, who is Jesus, we've come to the point of his resurrection. The last couple of weeks we've looked at his character and we've looked at his uh, claims. And we saw that some of those uh, claims were supported by his astonishing ability to do miracles. Nothing ambiguous about his miracles. If you've got a leprous hand and instantly it's kind of fine, isn't really much other explanation other than it must be supernatural. Doesn't otherwise happen. So, but this evening, we're looking at the biggest miracle, and that is his resurrection from the dead. And I'll start with epitaph. Uh, we're not going anywhere. Uh, can you control? I know you won't be able to read what I'm doing. Why had I frozen? Ah, good. Right. Epitaphs. If I'm in a cemetery, and I, I quite like looking around cemeteries, on the very rare occasions when I have a burial, and I'm kind of like, um, well, I've done my bit, if you like, and I sort of step back from the grave, and uh, the principal mourners kind of peer in, hopefully don't fall in. I mean, I could spend the evening telling you about funny funerals, but um, I'll resist the temptation. You know, like finding, arriving and finding 
thought I'd go and find where it was. And as I got closer, I was on my own with the undertaker. And you sort of see earth coming out. The thing was only half dug. So how do you manage to sort of, you know, fill a 400-yard walk to take 20 minutes? It's possible, I assure you. Or, or there's one here, Shirtbridge St. John, where the water table is so high, if you don't bury the body immediately, it'll be floating. So anyway, don't get buried there. Um, right, now we're back. At, so, so I read some of the kind of epitaphs, you know, as I get older, I get a little bit alarmed when the people I'm reading about have died younger than me. Um, so Victoria Wood this week, a bit too close to the bone. She's the same age as me. But uh, I think military cemeteries, if you've ever had the chance to go to one of those in northern France, whether from the First or the Second World War, um, the families were able to choose what epitaph they could have on the grave. And or probably 25 years ago, um, we discovered where one of my grandfathers is buried. He died six weeks from the end of the First World War. He was 38. He must have been a, a late conscript because they would have started conscripting in, 2000, in um, 1916 and they would have started with the 18-year-olds because the previous two years they had volunteers. And his epitaph was that he gave his life for others. Now, some epitaphs can be quite amusing. John Dryden, the dramatist who lived in the 17th century, inscribed on his wife's grave, Here lies my wife, here let her lie, now she's at rest, and so am I. <laughs> Resist the temptation. Um, others can be quite clever. On a grave of Jonathan Pease from eight, the 1880s in Massachusetts, he writes, Under the sod and under the trees lies the body of Jonathan Pease. He is not here, there's only the pod. Pease shelled out and went to God. <laughs> and some are quite subtle, like uh, this one, which is a blank. Um, it's... Um, the body of Benjamin Franklin, who was a printer, and he made a lot of money, he was American, he made a lot of money over in this country just before the American War of, Ind uh, what do they call it? It's where they got rid of us, the Brits, and their War of Independence, I suppose they call it. Um, and um, he writes this, it's, it's quite subtle. He says, the body of Jonathan Franklin, printer, although he did go on to be president of the United States, but he was a printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition, corrected and amended by its author. Or an extension of epitaphs are the in-memoriam columns that you find in local papers. I came across this one a few years ago. It's not as eloquent as uh, Benjamin Franklin, but it uh, has a heartfelt expression. The widow writes, They say there is a reason. They say that time will heal. 
but neither time nor reason will change the way I feel. For no one knows the heartache that lies behind the smiles. No one knows how many times I've broken down and cried. Gone from home, that smiling face, those cheerful, happy ways, the heart that won so many friends in bygone happy days. I want to tell you something, so there won't be any doubt. You're so wonderful to think of, but so hard to be without. Loved with a love beyond all telling, missed with a grief beyond all tears, love forever. And an internet search flags up the fact that she put something in her local paper each year. Very sad. Of course, we'd like to know what happens um, after death, as this epitaph of F.E. Jean Robinson, who died in 1922, suggests. Come blooming youths as you pass by, and on these lines do cast an eye. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare for death and follow me. Which is not so funny. But someone's written, to follow you, underneath this epitaph on the grave, to follow you, I'm not content. How do I know which way you went? Well, there are two ways. Which is it? There's this, written in the 1960s in the uh, left bank in Paris, Jean-Paul Sartre. Life has no meaning, a struggling through the gloom and the senseless end of it is the insult of the tomb. The Christian hope, which is a sure and certain one, is in marked contrast. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. What is your hope for when your time is up? It may seem a long way off, but who knows, people do tragically die young. No hope or a certain hope? Well, Jesus' resurrection is the basis on which we Christians have assurance hope certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. The Christian hope is founded on the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead and that if we've entrusted our lives into his life, then we will follow him not only now, but to the place with him where he has prepared for us to go. But of course, it's all just wishful thinking, a nice thought, unless there is evidence for it which is where Jesus' resurrection comes in. First of all, could it happen? Secondly, did it happen? And thirdly, so what if it did? Those three things that I'd like to try and answer this evening. Could it happen? The philosopher David Hume thought not. He thought dead men do not rise. Hume rejected the resurrection miracle by so defining miracles that they couldn't possibly occur. Hume never, you see, came across a miracle because they didn't happen in his experience. He therefore says they can never happen. Well, can anybody be so sure that something they've never experienced could never happen? 
It's a very closed view of the universe. We ought to be more open, especially since if there is a God, he's more than able and more than likely to do something rather unusual that would actually fit into the category of the miraculous. Otherwise, it would be rather hard to spot him, wouldn't it? So I'd advise us to have an open view of the universe rather than a closed one because a closed mind is rather like a closed parachute. It's deadly. So, we ought to be open to the possibility that it might happen if there is a God who wants to communicate with us and enter our world and to be rather different. And if it happened, what is its significance for us? So let's look at some of the the evidence. So Jesus' body, it's been, it's been killed, it's laid in a new tomb, it's been cut out of solid rock, so there's no chance of any rear entry into that tomb. There's also no chance of escape from that tomb, and there's no chance of a mix-up with other bodies, because there are none there. It's all wrapped up. Perhaps he weighed about a hundred pounds. It's all wrapped in linen. It's bound in a resin, myrrh. There's no escape. Harry Houdini would have had difficulty getting out of that. And it's difficult to remove, which is important, because the shroud seems to have been left as if unwrapped, according to the record. There's the stone door, which may well have... Uh, weighed about a tonne and the women were worried as to who might help them move it when they hadn't had time to sort of put all the spices along with Jesus's body on the Friday because the Sabbath was coming at 6 p.m. So they were going to go after the Sabbath first thing Sunday morning and uh, roll the stone away and do what they should have wanted to do earlier. There's the guard, 16 Roman legionaries on four-hour watches, four of them at a time. They have round-the-clock readiness. But, of course, nobody sees the, execu the resurrection. Could we catch up when I read that? Nobody sees it. It's dawn on the Sunday morning. There's an earthquake, which is probably a follow-on tremor from the earthquake that happened when Jesus died on the Friday afternoon. The angel of the Lord came and rolled the stone away, and the guard was scared stiff and totally petrified. The angel then sat and waited for the first arrivals. And we find that the tomb is empty. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said is what the women are told. No one at that time ever suggested that the tomb was not empty. Not the Romans, not the Jews, 
no one thinks that the tomb is not empty. He has risen, is the claim. First, he appeared to the two Marys who see him. Now, if you were making this up, this is an enormous faux pas because women weren't even allowed to be witnesses in a Roman court of law in occupied Judea. They don't even qualify. Yep, it's sexist, but that's the first century. You would not do this if you were making it up, would you? They will immediately be thought of as unreliable. So we read verse 8 of 24. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So after the appearance to the women, there are uh, ten more appearances which took place over a six-week period involving 550 different people. And two of those people are particularly interesting and people who something astonishing must have happened for them to change their mind. The first is James, who is a half-brother of Jesus. And you may recall in Jesus' own public ministry that his family are said to think him barking mad at the kind of stuff he was coming out with. And then there is Saul, the arch-persecutor of the Christians, the one who, between 30 and 35 AD, went around kind of ferreting out where these new cells of Christians were gathering. Not just in Jerusalem, he'd travel up to Damascus, which is a pretty long way to walk, to find them, to drag the leaders off, and we read that he was an accessory to the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And yet, both those men, his half-brother James, who would have known him incredibly well, and Saul, the arch-persecutor, changed to become convinced that Jesus, who they knew in the flesh, Paul probably would have done, I would suspect, given the closeness of their time, maybe not well, but they changed. They changed because they encountered the risen Jesus. But uh, how come the tomb was empty? What are some of the other possibilities? Well, it could be that disciples stole the body, but why would they die for a lie? Because of the apostles, apart from John, all the others did. You don't knowingly die for a lie. You might die for a lie if you've been conned into believing it but not if you're the ones perpetrating it. Maybe the priests confiscated it, but then why not produce it? And then this Christian challenge to Judaism would never have got off the ground. Well, they never did produce it because they didn't take it. The same would apply to the Romans. What about the wrong tomb? These women, yeah, a bit emotional, they went to the wrong tomb. I don't know if you've ever been to a burial, but I guarantee you that if you went back two days later, you'd pick it out in a pretty big cemetery without any difficulty at all. It would register with you. In that cemetery I showed you at the beginning where I have this grandfather, who of course I never knew, um, 
There are 11,500 tombstones. They are identical. They're in shape. The words are different. But I could go pretty near exactly where that is because I have a connection with it. And so did these women, and so did the others who were with them. What about um, legends from later generations? Well, the records of these events, this resurrection of Jesus, were written very soon after they actually happened, within the lives of many people who were around at the time. They could have been challenged. It's not just one person's uh, record. There are multiple records. And um, there are many, many, th five and a half thousand, I think, bits of manuscript of the New Testament. Now, when you consider that something like Julius Caesar's kind of Gallic Wars has about ten, and they're about a thousand years after the original was written, you can see why people say that the, res the life and resurrection of Christ is probably the most, the best attested event in ancient history. What about hallucinations? Some kind of spiritual resurrection. Well, people do have hallucinations, but only individuals have hallucinations. You can't have mass hallucinations. What about the idea that it was revived and not raised? But I think the Gospels cover that. They went to kind of great lengths to sort of spell out some of the kind of details of Christ's resurrection, particularly about the spear thrust in his side. Why record that unless they want to make absolutely sure that you know that he was dead? that he wasn't taken down in a rather kind of weak state, put in a cold tomb, and somehow or other be able to move a one-ton uh, stone. No, he was dead all right. Well, the verdict. What is it? You could go with Richard Dawkins, who's a biologist, who says accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Well, you can be a professor at Oxford and still be quite ignorant about something which isn't your subject, can't you? Or take this from a former Lord Chief Justice of England. Judges are more used to weighing up kinds of evidence like we're looking at, what you might call historical evidence. He said, in its favour, as a living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world can fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection is true. So who do you go with? The rash biologist? or the judicious judge. Well, Jesus had predicted his resurrection. We read that uh, in Matthew three times he said to his disciples, not that they understood him at the time, from that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So, could it happen? I think we can say yes. Did it happen? I think we can say yes. So what if it did? 
What are the consequences for us? What is the resurrection of Jesus' significance? 24.9, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. They recognised the significance of the resurrection. They recognised that he was the Lord God who had appeared on earth in the person of Jesus. The resurrection was evidence of it. And they worshipped him and he did not um, really dismiss them for doing so. He didn't try and correct them. He, real, he, he, he was communicating that, yep, they've reached the right verdict. They've realised who he is. Jesus was who he said he was, and he could do what he said he could do. Now, there are three responses um, to, to this that you can make. Uh, the people who listened to the Apostle Paul in Athens... Uh, which is recorded in Acts 17, uh, are examples of these three responses. After he had uh, spoken to them, um, he's uh, the Apostle Paul. He's speaking from here. This is where um, um, the um, this is where the Areopagus was. This is kind of the council meeting place where the kind of city council of Athens would have met. It's otherwise known as Mars Hill. And up there is the Acropolis, and on top of that is the Pantheon, built in 447 BC, in case you're interested. Um, so when Paul had explained to them, he'd connected with them uh, where they were at to with where the resurrection of Jesus impacted them, we read of three responses. Acts 17, verse 32... When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. One response. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. A second response. Open-minded, maybe put on hold a bit. Think about it further. At that, Paul left the council and a few men became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Well, you've had a chance this evening to consider the evidence, and I invite you to have your verdict. There, you'll all have had a little kind of yellow leaflet, which is a kind of summary. And uh, you could take it away as a kind of aid memoir. You can perhaps uh, read it, think about it, and use it if you're in discussion with anybody who asks you, why are you a Christian? And you say, well, because Jesus rose from the dead. They'll say, I'll prove it. And you're able to kind of give this evidence and see if they find that convincing. Or if you'd like to read seven pages from, this is a little booklet, it's out of print now, um, but it's available on the internet. It's called The Evidence for the Resurrection. It's by somebody who uh, was uh, Professor Sir Norman Anderson. He was a professor of, uh, um, well, he was director of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies at the University of London, and he was a Queen's Counsel. And so you'd find that, especially if you had to write an RE essay on the resurrection, quote all that, and you'd do really well. So I commend the yellow things with you. 
the Norman Anderson little leaflet, seven pages, is on the reception. Do feel free to take them and use them. But your verdict. The evidence for the veracity or truthfulness of the Christian faith is quite substantial. It's why we can have a sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, which is of enormous value when we do lose a loved one and when we ourselves are facing death. This is the Apostle Paul as we close. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so it will be for those who died as Christians. God will bring them to life with Jesus. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, in facing our own mortality, we aren't facing a great black hole of either ignorance or doom. We thank you that you came in the person of Jesus, you lived and died and paid for our sins and evidenced it by rising from the dead and providing a reliable record of that. May we benefit from it in two ways. One, so that we can have confidence in you and commit our lives to you and enjoy the prospect of the sure and certain hope of eternal life. But we also thank you, Heavenly Father, that uh, you have given us plenty of evidence, evidence which some of the brightest minds in the world history have recognised as being substantial enough to believe you rose from the dead. We pray that we might acquaint ourselves so well with the facts that we might be able to persuade others. Amen.